two things, I would say. One is a phrase by Seneca, the Greek philosopher, which says that there is no favorable wind for the sailor who doesn't know which harbor he wants to reach, which is a phrase that has terrified me for 50 years <laughs> and at the same time inspired me because it's like you have to have a direction. The interesting point is that you can change the direction, but you cannot leave the house if you don't have a direction. So you need a direction. That's clear. But the second part is what you said. I think it's about flexibility. And the ultimate goal is to be flexible, to be capable of getting information as fast as possible, analyze it, and modify trajectory as fast as you can. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to episode 102 of the SIDCast. And my name is Sid Finkelstein. I am the creator, the host, the mastermind, and the interviewer for each of these episodes that has really been and continues to be such a treat for me to do, to talk to so many interesting people, so much to learn from. And that is so much the case today. Bruno Vinciguerra is my guest. And I even titled this episode, What I Learned Along the Way. I was thinking about what should I call this episode? Because there's just so many things that Bruno has taught me and has learned in his career and continues to learn as a CEO now. So I just said, what I learned along the way, because every time I talk to Bruno, I learn something new. And that's exciting. I mean, that's what it's all about. Now, I'm happy to say that Bruno contacted me, I think kind of out of the blue, maybe in LinkedIn. He had read something about Super Bosses, my book, Super Bosses, and it really resonated with him. And he said, you know, next time you're in New York, maybe we could have a coffee or something like that. And so there was a next time that I was in New York and we met and we had lunch and other coffees and calls and we became buddies. And he's a great guy. He's an interesting person, a good person, but there's so much to learn. And that's why I really, you know, I asked him, he's actually come to my class at Tuck in the MBA program as a guest speaker. So I asked him, would you be game for the podcast? Because, you know, the things we're talking about at lunch and coffee and at breakfast, these are things that are exactly what I want to bring to my list about leadership, about life, about change, about creativity, about dealing with the world. And luckily he said, yes, I'd love to do that. And so here he is. And actually Bruno is now one of, I think in season three, I'm not quite sure how it worked out this way, but I think he is my third guest who has a very strong France-French connection. We had Philippe Bourguignon in episode 96 and Adrian Johnson, who grew up in Sierra Leone and, and the US, but has lived in France for years. In episode 100, and now Bruno Vinciguerra, who has joint France and U.S. citizenship, and he's the third one. So I don't know. There's something special about France besides the unbelievable food, the wonderful wine, the cafes, and the markets, and, and everything else. So who's Bruno Vinciguerra? Well, today he's the global CEO of Bonhams, which is one of the world's biggest auction houses. He's been doing that for almost three years. He has led global businesses in the consumer, luxury, and tech areas. He was a partner at Bain and Company, major consulting firm. He was a senior executive at Disney and worked with Michael Eisner. He was at Dell 
and work with Michael Dell. So you see, he had a seat at the table with some pretty cool, interesting people. And then he was actually the chief operating officer at Sotheby's for a number of years. And he was responsible for global profit and loss of the worldwide business. And he also played a major role in Sotheby's expansion to Beijing, which was the first international fine art auction house in mainland China. And now China makes up a gigantic market in the uh, fine art business. So it's hard to get to my kind of three quick headlines on what this episode is about because there's just so much to it. But in a nutshell, number one, creativity and intuition. Of course, with some of these industries, you know, Disney and Sotheby's and Bonhams, you would expect someone like Bruno Vinciguerra to care a lot about creativity, be enamored by creativity. But we also talk about creativity in business, creativity in leadership, creativity in running our own lives. And that kind of makes a nice juxtaposition of talking about creativity in the context of creative industries. Number two, managerial skills, stuff that you know. Is it possible to take your general management skills, if you will, and go to another job in another industry? Can you do it and can you do it successfully? There's a lot of debate about this and books written about this as well. But, well, Bruno's done it, right? He's done it. And I asked him that question. I mean, what could you take from Dell, you know, a company in the PC business that makes personal computers and servers and the like? And how does that relate to Disney, which is totally different, of course. And then we talk about Sotheby's, et cetera. And so we dig into that. And I think we come up with some interesting answers and suggestions about how to take the skills you learn in whatever job you've had. And as you think about shifting career tracks or taking on a new responsibility in a new area where you don't have such deep knowledge, a lot of what Bruno shares in this conversation is really going to be great. And then number three, my little hobby that longtime listeners of the SIDCAST know is I'm fascinated by the art auction business. I am fascinated by the idea that people spend 10 million, 50 million, hundreds of millions of dollars for artwork, sometimes from famous people, of course, but sometimes from artists that have become well-known, but you have no idea how this work could sell for a million dollars or for $10 million. It's kind of mind-blowing. Why do people do that? And what accounts for price? And Bruno, you know, again, he's had that front row seat there in Sotheby's and at Bonham's, and we talk about that at length. And it's so interesting. We talk about emotions. We talk about science and the interactions between the two. And all that really comes to play in the art auction story. And by the way, if you're interested in NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which are kind of this crazy big thing, you got to Google it if you've never heard the term NFT. I asked Bruno about that as well, and he'll share his view on what that means and what the heck that's all about. So Bruno uh, Vinciguerra, good friend, great speaker, a really interesting and deeply knowledgeable person. A pleasure to bring him to everyone in the SIDCAST. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here with my friend, Bruno Vinciguerra. Hello, Bruno. Hi, Sid. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm happy to have you on the podcast. I'm trying to remember how we first met. I don't know if it was related to super bosses or something, but I know pre-COVID days, we used to meet up in New York for a coffee or a tea or a lunch or something on occasion. And I've been trying to get you to come up to Dartmouth, to my classroom at Tuck, which you're going to do via Zoom. So that's good. But do you remember kind of how we first connected? I think... It was through Jim, actually. And it's actually, it was around Super Bosses. I was actually very interested by the concept of your book because this notion of apprenticeship and teaching leadership by doing to your team was fascinating. And I think that was the context, effectively. So I know we're going to talk about your leadership approach over the years, but I want to start by asking you, because you've had some pretty cool jobs. What was the best job you ever had? 
It's going to sound incredibly self-serving and tactical, but I'm going to have to say the job I have today. Okay, it sounds self-serving. Yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But but by the way, it's interesting because, yes, in a way it's self-serving, but it's also as you progress in your career, you're more and more clear about what's important. And hopefully for most of us, by finding the job that fits perfectly your expectations. That being said, I love Bain. I started my career with Bain and I think Bain was an extraordinary business education, if you will, Mm -hmm. because it was all about trying to understand a problem that you don't have a lot of experience with firsthand Mm -hmm. and working in a team with very smart people Focusing on the quality of your communication to convey a message to an audience you have a limited time with and be effective at using the information you have and at conveying it. So Bain was a fantastic, fantastic first job to have. And I think I would recommend to many people if they don't know necessarily what they want to do, consulting is a great first start. Every job was fascinating. But what I love about my job today is a combination of things. Because Why do I love auction? Art auction for three reasons. One is it is thrilling, exhilarating to see the best of human creativity through ages. And that's what I deal with on a daily basis. I see the best that the man has created, whether it is watches, cars, paintings through ages. And that's extraordinary and very satisfying. The second dimension of art auction I love, and this is interesting because I think we're all different, but I worked at Dell, which was pretty much a process-driven company. Dell Computer, right? Dell Computers, absolutely. And really there, you optimize a process. You get how do you get millions of computers for the lowest price, the highest quality, and the minimum amount of time. And your satisfaction comes from optimizing every day, improving by 0.15% the process. And then you have business that are more event-driven, like when I worked at Hollywood with Disney or today in Ocean World, where you have no idea what's going to happen. So it's not a process being optimized. It's an event, and it could be a triumph or disaster. And when we launched a movie at Disney, it was the same. I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty, and all the surveys don't tell you how fundamentally how the consumers are going to react to the product when they see it. This is a strange business, really, as you describe it, because you're putting in millions of dollars. Sometimes it could even be a hundred million, but let's say tens of millions, and you don't know whether you're going to get a return on investment. Is that what you're saying? That would be a little bit dramatic because obviously when we talk to our clients, obviously we give them great assurance that we're going to do a good job for them and are going to be very effective. And the statistical rate of Delivery are great, but what you don't know is that we're talking 90% and so for the best way. What you don't know if is it going to be a good sell or a triumph? Yeah. That you really don't know. Because in French, we would say la mayonnaise doit prendre, which means the sauce needs to... <laughs> it needs to take, it needs to... Yes. Yeah. And you don't know what you get, even though you have the recipe, you don't know exactly what you get until you get it. And so there is a lot of uncertainty. Of course, with years of experience and expertise, we limit the uncertainty. But auction is an uncertain sport. And you could have, as I said, generally we don't have a surprise. Something that should sell, sells. But is it going to sell extraordinarily well or not? It depends. That is a little bit uncertain. So I think depending on who you are, you can live in this business of big events that can be triumphs or could be moderate successes 
or you can be in a world of perfection and optimization where mm -hmm. you know what to deliver. And I don't think that one is better than the others, but one fits my personality more than the other. The third dimension is the most important is I have the privilege, and in my previous job at Sotheby's was the same, to be surrounded by people that are absolutely passionate about what they do. So for most of them, or many of them, it's not a job, it's their life, it's their passion. And they live it, breathe it, Sunday, Saturday, Monday, it's not a job paying their bills, it's their absolute passion. And that's rare. I mean, I was lucky enough to work in great companies that are very efficient, but I was not necessarily always surrounded by people that are absolutely passionate about yeah. them. They're the deep experts. I remember once when we were talking, somebody who has a curator and a specialist in some narrow segment, there's nothing they don't know about that. And you need to, I don't know if you said this, but my sense is you need to get out of the way or figure out a way to help them do their job better because there's no way you can help them do the job. You just want to give them the resources and the space. I mean, is that how you see your role? Absolutely. It's interesting because when I joined Sotheby's, I came from, as we discussed many times, I had a career at Bain, Disney, and Dell. All those three companies are extraordinary companies, celebrated in many books and in many rankings. That being said, I don't think there is a preparation for the art world in any of these companies, if you think <laughs> about it. And I remember talking to the CEO of Sotheby's and saying, you know, I have a French education, classical education. I know a bit about art, but I don't know so much. So to help you run the company on a worldwide basis, how do I deal with that? And he told me, you know what? As long as you pretend you don't know the difference between Warhol and Picasso, you'll be okay. And it took me some time to integrate the advice, but the advice was don't go there. And today I'm passionate about art. I'm a collector myself, but when I came, I, you don't have the knowledge of your experts. You have 1% of their knowledge. So what one needs to do when you're in a position of leadership and management with specialists, you have to say, one, show them your respect and you even admire what they do. And two, show them how you can be useful to them. And then you have a discussion, but don't try to second guess them, clearly. Do you think that's an approach that might work or does work in professional services that go back to consulting? Or I'm thinking about academia, naturally enough, where the real talent in an academic institution, the individual professors who are researchers and teachers and scholars. And if you're the dean or the president or the provost of the university, even if you're an academic, it's highly unlikely you're in the same area. Well, you're not in the same area by definition of 99% of the faculty. And so you can't possibly have close to their knowledge. Their dedication to whatever their topic is, is enormous. You can't tell them what to do. You need to give them the resources. I mean, I'm kind of paraphrasing you, but I'm interested if you think it fits in other fields. I'm giving you the academic example. You could tell me about consulting. Tell me what you need to succeed. I got to give you everything I possibly can, and then I'm going to get out of the way, and I'm going to let you shine. And I think really talented, creative people like that. They like that a lot. What do you think? Absolutely. And I think it's completely true in academia. That's very clear. I would say in museums too. In museums. Yes. Because if you are like the leader of a great museum and you have expert in tapestry or in Asian art, or it's, mm -hmm. it's the same. We are the same. I think in very specialized professions like consulting too, you have something similar with creative professions too. It's like, for example, I was close to people running some video games companies. The creator of video games are the essence of the company. And if you're the CEO 
And however charismatic, sophisticated, professional you are, you're less important than them. They are the business. Your job is not to shine, but it's to give them all the condition to exert their art, quote unquote. I wonder how far that management approach or leadership approach extends to more traditional industries. Let's say when you have professional workers, typically highly educated, but not necessarily academics, doctors, yeah. curators. They could be engineers, for example, at Dell or coders, if you want to take a more common example. Uh, so I wonder whether that approach extends even wider or it's more of a hybrid situation. I think I know where you're going, Sydney, <laughs> and I agree with you. I agree with you. And it's interesting because in a way it is easier with highly skilled and highly qualified professional, it's easier to be humble because you talk to the worldwide specialist of all master paintings and he tells you that's the way it's going to be. You know you cannot contradict him. But the reality is the process would apply to many, many situations. And the same goes, for example, and I take a completely different analogy, but you probably have heard about the NFT. The I was going to ask you all about the NFT because it's going crazy. It is yeah. crazy. We'll come back to it on the principle yes. itself. But what's interesting is to me, I see that and I'm thinking, okay, I'm 58. So I'm not the best position to understand on my own. I spend time with young experts in our team that are less than 30. I say, what do you think? And I call my sons to say, okay, explain me what an NFT is. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible I realized, gosh, I would not have looked at it this way. And I know their perspective is better than mine because they're much closer to this world than I am. So I think your question is about, could we always get more by listening to the expertise of all the people that are around you, either their expertise or their specificities and get to a better answer? Absolutely. But it's easier when the knowledge is so clearly superior to yours. Yes. I feel like not a lot of managers, let's say, understand this. Because in a sense, what you're saying is that less is more. Not always, but often, less is more. And the ability to step aside and make room for other people, to let other people shine, to let other people be the central players, it's the opposite to when you, you know, you talk about bad bosses, they take all the credit, they tell you what to do, they're micromanagers, all of those things. But I don't think it's that well understood what we're talking about. And, you know, you could push back if you disagree with that, even in more quote unquote traditional industries. And I think that it's going to become even more important going forward because who is not a knowledge worker? Who is not a tech expert, not expert, but who doesn't use tech and digital as a central part of their job? I don't know what industry is immune to any of those things anymore. I agree. Absolutely. I think the first point you made regarding not understood by many managers, I don't know how many managers understand or don't understand that. I know to me, my trajectory is about, I've been in position, it was very clear I was not the most knowledgeable person in the room, even if I had the biggest title. <laughs> so I see when you realize that, mm -hmm. and I, I went from Bain to Disney and I had never worked in the entertainment industry and I arrived in Los Angeles. I had big decisions to make and little knowledge. And then I moved from Disney to Dell and I don't have a technological background. So I had to get the opinion of the people. And then even, I would say to some degree, even more in art because it's even more specific. But so I had to learn. But yes, I think something has happened in the economy, which is really fundamental in the last 30 years. It's like the individual initiative is becoming more and more important than the global planning. If you think of the industries that have rebuilt the Western economy after World War II, 
They were long-term planning with big plans in France, the country I was born in. There was the five-year plan or the 10-year plan and the 20-year plan. And now it's absolutely ludicrous. In the AK, my clients were big mainframe companies. We had the master plan. So the master plan, we say, you look at all the resources, you probably remember that seed, and some younger people have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was the idea, we're going to plan where the company is going to go in the next 20 years and mm-hmm. deploy all the computer resources. And generally, it would take five, 10 years to deploy the master plan. And at the end of the master plan deployment, the company had changed business. It was the heyday of strategic planning. And the articles in Harvard Business Review were all about strategic planning. Business schools were teaching about strategic planning and a little unfortunate discovery was made, which is it actually will hurt you more than it'll help you. Because even then, the pace of change was not zero. There was an assumption that there was no change. It was not like today, but so it's just what you said, right? As soon as you're done, it's obsolete or at least dangerous to follow step by step. Absolutely. And what I see now, and I'm not an expert at that, but I see with my team developing, redeveloping our website, there is a concept of sprints. Six-week sprints. Okay, go ahead. Sprints, which is, they say, these small bites, small project. Okay, what Mm -hmm. can we achieve in six weeks? It's completely different. And that's all the new programming. And I can talk to that with a lot of expertise and assurance because I'm more like looking at it than making it happen. And they explain that to me. But the way they develop now is completely different. So it's like, it's small bites. You don't have an overall plan Mm -hmm. that's, takes 10 years to mm-hmm. develop. And it's a completely different approach of to development and to generally to thinking. So it's like try and fail as opposed to determine exactly how it's going to be, define the optimal way and then execute it. It's more flexible. It's trial and error much more than before. And I think it's interesting to see the industries that then go happen well. I, mean, I work for... Mainframe companies. I want to tell you a story. I worked for Boole Computer, which was the leading mainframe as a consultant, a leading mainframe company a long time ago. And there was a long analysis of the size of a plant that should be launched in the north of France. I'm talking, I think it's 1985, 1986. Two years later, the plant was 10 times too big. <laughs> not one time, not two times, not three times, 10 times. Really? Wow. Yes, because... They had not predicted the concept of assembly, which is the industry we evolved so fast that the only task that would make sense to execute in a high labor cost country would be just assemble the pieces that have been supplied by suppliers around the world. And so you don't build a mainframe, you just add five parts, that's it. And it's not a criticism of the people that at the time made the plan, but they had, didn't have the elements. They look at a box, say, how are we going to build that box? Suffice to say, they didn't know that 20% of the box would be built better than anyone else in the world by someone in Singapore. And you would not rebuild it. You would just import the components. And at Dell, it was the same. I mean, at Dell, we changed, I think, the plan two or three times, the central plan for Europe in, in less than 10 years. So you reinvent the commission. Yeah, I completely get what you're saying, but it raises for me a really difficult question. I like to know what you think about it, which is, so if you're a smart manager or leader, really, you know that things are going to happen that you cannot predict. 
Yeah. You know that's going to happen, but you don't know what you don't know. Therefore, is there any way to prepare? Are there certain aspects of what you do that you still can prepare? Or is it all about fast response and, okay, the, here's the world today. Let's do our six-week sprint or whatever it is. And then look at the world again and say, okay, that one was a bad idea. That was a good idea. Let's change it. Let's go to the next. I mean, how do you get any degree of preparation and planning? And this is not 1980s now. The change is exponential compared to those days. Yes. Two things, I would say. One is a phrase by Seneca, the Greek philosopher, which says that there is no favorable wind for the sailor who doesn't know which harbor he wants to reach, which is a phrase that has terrified me for 50 years <laughs> and at the same time inspired me because it's like you have to have a direction. The interesting point is that you can change the direction, but you cannot leave the house if you don't have a direction. So yeah. you have to establish one. Absolutely, I think it's critical. If one doesn't have a direction, there is no way to rally the troops around the direction. There is no way to see if this new element needs to be integrated or ignored or change the direction. So you need a direction. That's clear. But the second part is what you said. I think it's about flexibility. And I remember that's a long time ago, talking to fast retailing and the new concepts of retailing. And I took him to one of the gurus of that. And I said, well, but how do you know that yellow is going to be the color mm -hmm. next season? How do you know? What do you do? Do you hire the guy who has the feeling for the color? And say, well, yeah, you try to hire the guys and you find one and he, he got it right the first year, sometimes the second year, rarely three years in a row. The real way to win is to say you have indicators in each and every store and say, oh, oh, after two or three days, gosh, yellow is the color of the sea and you resupply full speed on yellow. So to your question, the ultimate goal is to be flexible, to be capable of getting information as fast as possible, analyze it, and modify trajectory as fast as you can. Am I making yes. sense? Yes, 100%. That's very interesting because it means you're doing before you're planning because you're putting the yellow into the stores and every other color, presumably. And then you're getting the data that says, this is it. And then you can act on it. It's quite an interesting concept. And it's one that it depends on the industry. Some industries, there's long lead time. It's impossible to do anything, yeah. anything like that. But, you know, fast fashion has become with Zara as the poster boy of this, right? So let's go back to the art world. So how does the art auction business work? You can do a dissertation on that question. So we'll keep it narrow. But let's start with this. How do you make money? How does Bonham make money in the art world with art auctions? Yeah, fundamentally, we have commissions on the sales we organize. Okay. Yeah. And so what does it mean? That means the way we make money is, number one, we source the right objects, and number two, we sell them well. <laughs> okay, so nothing, nothing sophisticated, but very important. Sourcing is very important. And there's something that has fascinated me to say, in a way, the art industry is one of the industries in which new entrants have really had a hard time coming in. Whether this is new websites or big players, whether people coming from the luxury world, very few, because this is not only a business about selling, this is also a business about sourcing. And in the world of rarities, in the world of exceptional items, the success factor is to have the best art to sell or the best cars to sell, or the best jewelry to sell. That's the first criteria of success. You know, what you said is quite comparable what Peter Drucker said about what business really is. It's, it's the version in the art world, but he said, basically, you make something, you sell it. Everything else is overhead. <laughs> you source it, same thing as making it. There's no difference in conceptually, and then you sell it. 
How do you actually get the good stuff if it's so important? You're in competition with a lot of other players that would like the same thing. How do you do it? That's a critical question. A very strategic one for our industry, as you can imagine. There are three or four key success factors, key criteria. Number one is about relationships. And it's about the relationship that you've built through times with collectors, sometimes with the families of collectors. Mm -hmm. And we have people that work for years before a collector decides to sell and that are have uh, a portfolio of relationship all over the world or other cities. Yes. Why does a collector sell? Okay. A collector sells, that's a good question, for a few reasons. One, because he died. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody sells for him, but same idea. <laughs> yes, right. So we have this logic of death, death, divorce, and discretion, the four criteria for which, the four Ds, death, debt, divorce, and discretion. The first three are quite obvious. The fourth one, um, it depends. Sometimes you have people changing their tastes, changing their houses, okay. or having like some issues that they want to resolve, changing their style. So those are the criteria for which a collector sells. But often it's true that a collector collects for many years and sells once after a long period. And sometimes at the end of their life, sometimes before, that's why they sell. And so you get art works from collectors, but where else are you sourcing from besides the collectors? The collectors has the biggest source. Now you can have dealers that consign it. How about individual artists? Do they come to you and say, please take my stuff? <laughs> or they have an agent? Like you write a book, you have a book agent that sells it yes. to the publisher. That very rarely. It happens, and I can mention a couple of instances. Generally, the auction is considered as a secondary market, i.e. the primary market is managed by the dealers. So as you said, Sydney, the artists have a dealer that is their agent, fundamentally, and help them form some of the work that is expensive to produce, present their works in their galleries or in fairs they attend, and also manage the image of the artist and his visibility in the art world with the institutions, with the big clients. That's the role of the galleries, of the dealer. Mm -hmm. Then this art is bought by generally private, sometimes institutions, mm -hmm. if they reach fame fast. More and more, by the way, museums start to buy from contemporary artists very early. But that's what happens. And then the people that have bought from them decide to sell, either a few years after they bought or much later. So we sell from mostly private sometimes dealers, and sometimes, mostly in the U.S., deaccessions, meaning museums that have big collections and bills to fund and need to sell some of their art that they don't show. You know, the percentage of art owned by an institution like the Metropolitan Museum or the MoMA that is actually shown is small. So there's small, that, isn't it? Yeah. You know, even the, there's a small but beautiful museum right here in part of the Dartmouth campus, the Hood Museum of Art. And I think 1% of their collection is displayed. 1%. Yeah. It's very small. Therefore, sometimes the question, especially when they want to fund a new project mm -hmm. or if they have some difficulties linked to the economic environment, mm -hmm. the decision to sell is tempting for them. And sometimes they come to us to sell some of their collections. Yeah. I was also reading somewhere that could be very controversial because somebody may have given him that artwork probably did, in fact, donate. It's extremely controversial. And it's actually, it's not only controversial, but it's also a real puzzle from a legal standpoint. 
Because how long does a recommendation can be respected? And you start to have people that make donations to museums now, and they want to know that the work is going to be shown on a regular basis. But what do you say? 100 years, 200 years? They cannot resell it for five centuries. I mean, it becomes really... Amazing. Oh, my goodness. That's really interesting trying to plan their legacy. And you asked me about artists, Sydney. Yeah, yeah. And artists, it's very rare. A few artists have organized, and I was involved in one of those, which is like eight or nine years ago. Damien Hurst organized a great sale at Sotheby's in London mm. of his art directly to clients. But very few have done that. Very few. Yeah, you have to have a huge brand name and really the ability to cover the entire cost of, and the expertise and hire people to do that. Yeah. So what are some of the trends, not just NFT, and I'll ask you about that in a moment, but what are some of the other trends that are going on in the art world? I assume digital has got to be one of the biggest, especially in COVID, when I'm going to assume there weren't very many live art auctions going on for a long time. Absolutely. It's been incredible what has happened in the last 12, 15 months in the art world. Because in the beginning, we were all very concerned because obviously, you know, the art world works with big seasons. So people go to Art Basel in December, they go to a freeze in London in October, they go to the big sales in November in New York, the big sales in June. There's a calendar and the whole crowd tours around the world with dealers, collectors and uh, Art Basel in Switzerland in July. And Suddenly that stopped and we had actually what we realized that we're going to have to sell in a completely different way because we're not going to have those big events, the art fairs for the dealers, and we're going to have to talk to the people on a remote basis and maybe they're not going to be willing to buy because they won't see the art in the flesh. The net net of the 12 months is some people, some sellers have been conservative and are a little bit concerned about selling. But the sales are going extremely well. And the sell-through is the highest ever. And I've been analyzing that at length to try to understand what's going on. And I'm going to give you an example. We had a sale of jewelry in Los Angeles, mid-January. It's a very bad date in a way because it's totally off-season. And generally, this is a sale that has little following and we didn't do a lot of advertising. It was a small sale in size. And 55% of that sale was bought by people in Europe and in Asia. And we couldn't believe it. And the only way I have to explain it is what's happening. You have a lot of buyers that have time and money on their hands. And they browse everywhere. And they are not afraid to buy even if they don't see. And also you want to think about the psychology of a collector. When you have someone who is really passionate about a field and you tell them that there is an economic crisis, the first thing they think is, I'm going to be able to buy it for a lower price. That's their first reaction. Any passionate collector, the first reaction is, okay, this is a moment for bargains. So the selling has been extraordinary. And what has been even more than we thought surprising is the fact that people have been confident in buying with information that they get online. So they ask for more pictures. They ask for what we call condition report, which is a certification of the exact state Mm -hmm. of the the work Mm -hmm. of art. They want 3D pictures. They want a lot of things. They want to talk to an expert, but they're okay buying remote. And therefore, our business is going extremely well. And since July, we've established records for the company. It's incredible. It sounds like you you and others in the industry may be a little bit surprised 
at so many people willing to spend so much money without ever touching it, without ever, you know, touch it, but without ever seeing it face to face. It's yeah. a different type of buyer or is it just a similar type of buyer, just a different era and they're changing with it? It's a bit, several factors. First of all, I mean, a lot of the buyers, this business was really global already, as you know, and it's fairly explained and described in all the literature about the art market. But the reality is that everybody was not coming to the sales before. Yeah, they're on the phone there. Yeah, sure. And the secret of this industry is the following one. You have five, 600 people in an auction room during a great evening sale of the art world. Maybe five people in the room are bidding. The rest are there for the show. Yes, they are here for the entertainment. And the majority, the vast majority, I'm talking more than 90% of the bidders are either online, where? Online, on the phone, or leave what we call an absentee bid, which means that buy it to that level for me. And so that's the way it happens. And therefore, it was not that much of a stretch to move to an online model. That's what the facts have proven. The difficulty is, yes, less people have been able to see the art in person, but I guess with their sort of like the confidence they have in the large houses, and this is where it's very important to have a recognized and respected brand, Mm -hmm. and with more information online, I mean, they're comfortable. You know, another thing I'm interested in is the provenance of artwork. And there's lots of stories, like even movies about this, right? Especially when you look at work that was held in Europe and, you know, the Germans took over and they stole whatever they could steal from private collectors, from museums, and uh, not all of it was recovered. I don't even know what percentage was, if anyone even knows that, but a significant percentage was never recovered and then it, it could appear somewhere. And so I would think as a buyer... You want to really know what that provenance is, but then how do you do it? I mean, you have to almost be a detective to figure this out. Absolutely. That's completely true. There are some fascinating stories. I remember a few years ago, we sold a little statuette, a little sculpture of Gauguin, and one of the persons in the end on our department had to write to a monastery in the south of Lyon to try to get a written testimony of a friend of Gauguin who was seen with that work in many, many years ago, and to prove the connection to the artist. And I have a friend of mine who wrote a book on a Modigliani. Mm. She spent five years of her life trying to prove Mm. that the painting she has is from Modigliani. And as you said, it's not about forensic analysis like you see in some movies, because yes, that could be true for very old paintings. And you know, okay, that material couldn't be in Siena in the 16th century. That could work. And by the way, it doesn't prove, but it proves it's not, right? But when you talk about more recent arts, there are fakes that were made with all the same elements. So it's about the eye of the expert. It's about the analysis of the provenance, as you say, the work on the history, where was this painting, etc. And it's absolutely critical. In a global house, we cannot sell a painting if we don't know where it was between 1933 and 1950, 1945. Hmm. Absolutely not. That's the first question. We want to know where it was. Is there a guarantee to the buyer in case you made a mistake and you actually don't have full ownership, that something gets discovered? Well, it's a complex question because it's like, it's a guarantee. Yes, we do all the work we can. Now you can have some new evidence. For example, sometimes the experts of a given artist change their perspective Mm. on some works. And (laughs) at a given point in time, our duty is to do everything we can with information that is available 
to establish the quasi-certainty you're talking about. It cannot be a total certainty. I mean, the greatest experts of a given artist can disagree later with new evidence. So it's a quasi-guarantee. And collectors know that. So let's talk about this NFT for a moment. From someone who is, you know, in the center of the industry, traditional industry, does it strike you as completely crazy as it does for those of us on the outside that are discovering, you know, what was something sold for $69 million and Jack Dorsey's first tweet is sold for $2 million. And it's a hard one to understand. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, and as we discussed at the beginning of our talk, I went to talk to my children (laughs) Who well, that are, was smart. That's right. They're in their 20s. Yeah. On the West Coast. And I thought, yeah. what do you think? And here's what they talked to me about. They talked to me about the NBA website. Right. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, with the dance from LeBron James. I'm not yeah. a basketball specialist, but... I am familiar. And I recently was listening to someone who very senior in marketing at the NBA. And they see this NFT thing as a gigantic revenue generator with the potential. Yes. So, but let's understand. So I say, okay, you know what? It's a little bit like Levi Strauss, the anthropologist. You want to understand a small tribe and you understand everything about human societies. So I'm going to say, I'm going to try to understand how this works. So they tell me, okay, you can buy a dunk from LeBron James in the games Lakers versus the Rockets. For its, and I say, okay, what it is you're buying? You're buying a video segment, right? So he goes, he jumps, boom, smashes the ball into the net. And you can buy that for $220,000. Okay, so okay? again, just to be clear, because a lot of people are listening and don't, they know even less than I do, which is hard to yeah. imagine about yeah. NFTs. So for $220,000, you could buy a video snippet, a segment. Exactly. But I say then, but can you get this snippet from YouTube? I say, yes, of course you can. You could. So it's not original. It's not. It's not. And it's like, so what's original about it is the NBA stamp. That's what is original is the NBA has decided those 10 segments are unique and they're going to stay unique. That's the promise of the NFT and the, uh, the authentication of the object. But then you have a conceptual discussion and you can have your opinion. I can have my opinion which is why is it important to own something whose rarity has been organized? It is not real rarity because that segment of that basketball player, you can buy everywhere. You can find, not buy, but find everywhere. So what you buy is the stamp. That's what you buy. That's what you're buying. And the stamp is a stamp of authenticity from the owner of the content, the NBA in this case. Yeah. And the thing is, if you can resell it $500,000 because Sydney is now fanatic and he regrets mm-hmm. so much he didn't buy one of the first 10 stamps of LeBron James, yeah. you look smart. So I understand the concept if it's a trading chip. It doesn't even matter what the meaning is other than the fact that you can authenticate that I know that this pen, there's only one pen like this in the world. Or in this case, there's only one authenticated video clip of LeBron James doing this particular dunk. And then if I think that there's a market for that and somebody's going to come along, pay me even more, I'm buying and trading some speculative stock of some type or a commodity or something like that. I kind of understand that for people that are very big risk takers and traders. But if there's no underlying value to the NFT, there's no inherent underlying value, then at some point the train stops. And there's no longer any bidders because people, they play that game and they're not interested in playing that game anymore. Is it possible that the value could plummet to next to nothing? Because again, I can get the identical video clip and I don't have to ask anybody for it. It's free. 
the day you decide that having the NBA stamp on it is worth nothing, then it's worth nothing. <laughs> and the difficulty is to say, you know, for example, I have this discussion with people who are comparing art to that. Say, well, you know, Picasso, you're going to pay zero for a copy of a Picasso. And so why do you pay millions of dollars for the original painting? Because it's by the hand of Picasso. And there is a reality to the object. And some people would argue, but with the naked eye, and if you're not a specialist, you can't see the difference. That's true, but you know. But and you yourself know. That's right. And so you yourself know that. So on one hand, it is kind of a crazy thing because it's being applied to, we'll use the word art, broadly defined. But in other ways, it's not that unusual because people go to university and they spend now $75,000 a year to $100,000. Well, you have kids in college, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and they get a good education. And I'm a professor. I know that you can get most, not all, but you can get most of the education for free or almost for free online through TED Talks, through Coursera's and other MOOCs that are out there. And of course, there's an experiential side. There's a networking side. Those are real value-added components. But the raw content, so to speak, you can get most of that, but you won't have the degree from UCLA. You won't have the degree from Dartmouth. You won't have the degree from Harvard. And that authentication is everything. And it has been that way for hundreds of years. No, there is value to it. I mean, it's like with emotional goods, and if you look at education as an emotional good, because it's also your projection of what your life is going to be. So that's mm -hmm. emotional, right? <laughs> so it's sure. like, it's, it's realistic in terms of what do I learn, but in terms of what it's going to give me, there's an emotional dimension to that projection. And if you look at emotional goods, the value is really uncertain. And I had discussion with people I know, they're like, why would you pay $10 million for that? piece of art and I don't understand what's exceptional about mm -hmm. it. And sometimes I have discussions because people wouldn't see, for example, the technical difficulty and say, how comes this is not technically difficult or unique? How comes it's worth so much? I say, well, you know what? Sometimes it's worth so much because he was the first one to do it. He got the idea. It's the benefit of the innovation. And yes, technically, this is not so hard to redo. And he could, but the concept that he or she was the first one to have that idea was very important. So it's difficult. At the moment, it feels like we'll see where it goes. The dimension in NFT is more about, I think, the notion of a financial market and a trading market, like the baseball card. There is now digital visions of the baseball card. I think more than that, like than art, even though it was sold as art by Christie's. There is an Epicurean dimension to art, how you enjoy art, that I'm not sure is really clearly present there. But it's more a notion of like, this is a good you buy and you can rebuy later. It's more about rarity than art, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. And NFTs, to the extent that they grow, become bigger and bigger. I would think that your company, Bottoms, got to be in the business. It's a whole new segment, am I right? Yeah, we need to join that water. So we'll do some experiments and we'll continue because you want to stay aware of what's going on. And if you have a vocation like us to have a very universal house, like selling across departments and we sell British ceramics, we sell jewelry, we sell cars, we sell contemporary paintings, you need to stay with your world. I remember discussing with the head of the Met who took about having a contemporary art collection in the Met in New York. And as you know, it was kind of controversial. People were saying, why do they start a contemporary collection? It's so small compared to what they do mm -hmm. elsewhere. And he told me something very interesting. 
and say, if you build an institution for centuries, you can stop. You cannot say, okay, I'm going to stop here. Like past 1911, I stopped having art in my walls that are past 1911 because you are condemning the institution. If you want to grow and develop mm -hmm. an institution forever, mm -hmm. you have to introduce the new forms of art when they are published. And so we have to do the same. Sorry, long answer, but... No, the analogy, which is different, but to me is about learning. We're building a life that would last whatever number of years, so it's not going to last after we're done. But it's still long enough for some people who are lucky enough. Yeah, so you can't stop learning because you're building your life for the 80, 90, 100 years if you're lucky. Conceptually, it's the same type of idea. Let's shift gears. We only have maybe 10 or 15 minutes left. The time always flies. Tell us about Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner is legendary CEO of Disney, one of the most famous media moguls since the old days of, you know, MGM and, you know, Samuel Goldwyn or whatever his name was, right? But Eisner became unbelievably famous. And why did he become famous? What was his secret? And what was he like to work for? Because you worked directly for him for a number of years. Yeah, I worked with him. What's really striking is being a man of a vision. And I never worked with Steve Jobs, but I understand he was the same. These people, when they have a vision, they push for it and they, they walk through walls. Remaining open-minded and you talked about open-mindedness, which I think is a great leadership quality. And I remember seeing him talking to bouncers at the exit of a nightclub <laughs> or when internet started, because I worked at Disney in the late 90s and it was like a lot of, uh, that's the moment where internet was starting and he was spending a lot of time to get in touch and understand what was going on. And so vision, open-minded, very interested and intrigued by the new things and driven driven, which really is driven. never stop. You close the deals, you can get a better deal, you can make it happen. That was the characteristic of him as an individual. And he's been very, very successful because he really took Disney from, I don't know what Disney was in the 80s, but what I read about it is that it was a company that was in bad shape, right? They were that struggling, there were takeover battles. It was not being managed well, it's true. And Eisner changed everything, of course. There have been many other changes along the way. Have yeah. you followed Disney closely over the years, even after you've left? Not closely, a bit. You know more yeah. than most people know about Disney in any event. Because I want to ask you about their strategy over the last, I don't know if it's 10 years or longer now, of buying these, to me, really blue chip entertainment assets, whether it's Lucasfilm, Pixar, Marvel, probably there's some others I'm not thinking of. These are real blue chip. And they bought it and then they applied the Disney model, which is, I think being able to leverage the entertainment content in so many different ways from theme parks to movies to TV. And now with Disney Plus, we give them content for that. What do you think about all that? It's very smart. What Disney has built with Michael Eisner between like 80s, 90s, they built a formidable ability to leverage creativity. So you have properties, you have a new movie, and then you resell it a million ways. You resell it as video, you resell it in the store as plush toys, you do TV programs, you do sequels, prequels. They were extraordinary. So great creativity experience, but the ability to end theme park attractions, etc., hotel theming, you name it. And the challenge in the beginning and at the end of the previous century was that the reach of Disney was narrowing because in the 
former acception of what the Disney brand stands for, we say, well, Disney was reaching younger and younger. You know, it used to be 11-year-old and then 10-year-old, 9-year-old, 8-year-old. The directly addressable market was shrinking. And so you had this formidable machine, this unique skill, which I think is fairly unique in the world, to market cultural properties and assets of that nature, but a shrinking addressable market. And suddenly, by buying into Star Wars, Marvel, etc., you expand several years in the age group you can target. And you bring your talent, your skills, the know-how of your organization to a much broader market. That's why it worked, I think. And all the franchises that, especially Marvel and Star Wars, then you have debate about, you know, you have the Star Wars fanatics are going to say, is it true to the initial spirit of what? And that's not your theme, right? That's not your purpose. From a business strategic standpoint, it's very clear and very logical, very smart, and it has worked. It's been unbelievable, right? Is there anything from those days that you think of or relied on for your own leadership, being now CEO and other very senior positions post-Disney as well? Is there anything you took from that that you think about or use even today? Yeah, one thing, I'm not going to tell you who, but it's very senior very senior leader and who wanted to launch something. And I thought it was a bad idea. Okay. And I did the analysis and I said, I think we're going to lose $50 million if we do that. Was launching a magazine, a new form of magazine. And the person looked at me and said, you know what, Bruno, people like you, I've told things like this to me for 30 years and I'm here because I've ignored them. So I'm going to ignore you. And he ignored me and we lost more than $50 million. But you know what? <laughs> what was interesting, because I took it away, because he was a very, very successful man. And I thought about it a lot and I realized, and it goes back to the beginning of our conversation, Sydney, is like, you can do all the analysis. And at Bain, I was trained to do analysis. Mm. And it's very important. And you need to look, you need to quantify. But in many industries, you need to roll the dice. And if you don't roll the dice, you go nowhere. And sometimes you're going to win, sometimes you're going to fail, you're going to lose. But you have to roll the dice. And it was really a learning for me because in that case, he was wrong. But he had been right many times before. And probably the spreadsheet didn't say he was right. right? And it made me realize that at the end of the day, there are big decisions that you have to follow your instincts. You do all the math, you do all the preparation. And later, to your question, where it has served me, when we gave guarantees on big paintings and you have multi-million dollar decisions, there is no analysis that are going to make you certain. You're going to have to take a risk. And you look at your experts, you gather them, you get the feedback. Why do you think it's going to work? Why don't you think it's going to work? But at the end of the day, when it becomes like a company critical decision, you have mm-hmm. to make the decision to say, okay, we do it or we don't do it. And at that moment, there is no analysis left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to roll the dice. Am, and I, that, am I making sense? A hundred percent. In a way, you're defining ultimately what the CEO's job gets down to at the end of the day. Because nobody's going to make those gigantic bets, bet the company bets without the very, very top person or team saying, you know, I'm willing to do it. And you could bring as much analysis as you want and you got to do it now. But there's, people think you can get certainty and there's no such thing as certainty in life. You want to get the odds the best you possibly can. Absolutely. I would go even further. There are more money to make when there is no certainty. Certainty is not profitable or everybody would do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. The real logic of the economic world, and there is no such a thing as a free lunch, high profit 
means high risk and you have to calibrate. And I think ideally as a leader, when you have the right mixture of opinion, expertise, contribution, and conversations, people look at you and say, wow, at the end, they know you're on your own, right? You're alone. And they say, it feels good to have someone else making the decision as one of my colleagues told me one day. <laughs> yeah, right. The pressure, the pressure's off of me. Bruno's got to figure it out. His name, his fingerprints are on this. I wonder whether you could teach somebody to do this, or it just takes years and decades of experience where you've done the analysis, you've been the analytical person many times over, you observed, and hopefully you've been very self-aware of some of your own biases, but also what's working, what hasn't. I'm thinking about in the context of both business school for MBAs, I'm thinking about it in terms of executive education, I'm thinking about it in terms of kind of a super boss theme, how you can mentor other people and mentor talent. To what extent is this skill and it's a funny word to use, right? Skill, rolling the dice. But it is a skill, I think. How can you teach, can you teach anybody this? I don't know. It's a difficult question, I think. And it's funny, yesterday, I was talking to a very senior leader of our company, and we were discussing about a recruiting decision. That's another <laughs> where, place where you yes. roll the dice. Yes, exactly. And to me, it's probably the most difficult. Because mm -hmm. hiring well is really, really difficult. I was always very self-criticizing of myself until I read something from Peter Drucker that say, you know what, when you replace a leader, one times out of three, it's an improvement. One times out of three, it makes no difference. One times out of three, it's worse. And I thought, okay, I'm not too bad then. <laughs> if they, I think I can beat that. But seriously, and we were discussing, I was telling her, well, what do you feel? Because at the end of the day, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but if you've done all the math, if you've done all the analysis, if you've put on the side the thing that are really stupid, that make no sense, that rationally there is a potential to succeed here mm -hmm. and it could work. And you're like at the very last minute where you're going to have to push the decision. What do you feel? What echo do you have in yourself? And I think to me, all the hiring mistakes I've made, I knew. I have to tell you. You knew. Deep down, you knew, but you still went forward. Yes, because I was like, and uh, I would say my three or four biggest mistakes in my career was recruiting, where I recruit, I put the wrong person in the job. And each time I was like, not really happy, not really convinced. But there was some pressure. The job has been vacant for a while. The incumbent was not doing this or that. And people were telling me, no, no, it's great. This new person is great. And I felt, oh. Not really. And so I think if you've done the work, if you've done the analysis, if you've asked the opinions of people that now and can advise you, and you're at that last moment, it's what do you feel really deep inside? Do you think I'm crazy or am I making sense? I don't usually hear it quite the way you're describing it. I hear it more often as a comparison between, okay, let's be analytical, do the Bain consulting approach, you know, fact-based analysis, be super analytical or go with your gut instinct, your intuition. But what you're saying is something a bit more sophisticated than that, because you're doing all the analysis. You're eliminating a lot of potential mistakes. But then at the end of the day, there's still no certainty, and you have to go with kind of what you deep down feel based on your experience, based on what you've seen, and based on feedback, I think, from other people as well. But then they walk out of the room and you say, okay, this is what it is. So it's a little bit, I think, a bit more sophisticated comparison of what you usually see between, you know, system one or system two, to use Daniel Kahneman's terminology, or, you know, model one or model two. Look, we're definitely getting out of time. 
It's always so interesting to talk to you, Bruno. And I think I ended up asking you things I've never asked you before in our kind of private conversation. So that means that we can keep on going. But I want to wrap up with my kind of favorite advice question, which is advice you would give to yourself if you could magically go back in time. And your sons are early 20s, aren't they? They are. Yeah. So imagine you're the same age, which you were one day. And so was I. And you could magically go back. The 2021 Bruno can go back to the, let's say, the 21-year-old Bruno Vinciguerra and lean over and say, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's one bit of advice I have for you that you should do, you should not do, how you should think about the world, this is it. What would that advice be to yourself at that time? Well, that's a difficult one. I would say try new things, different things, always. And not be afraid of going into the highest uncertainty it. And all the decisions I've made with like a sense of, I mean, when I joined the art world, for example, I had a discussion with an old friend of mine who is a very, very successful financial person. And he told me, you're crazy. <laughs> and, and I was very happy because at the day I had said no to one of the most respected institutions in the world of finance mm-hmm. and yes to Sotheby's. Hmm. And I had dinner with him in London. I say, this is what I did. And he looked at me, you're absolutely crazy. Hmm. And I think all of us, we have our own path. We don't know what it is. We can't know what it is. And by the way, I would say, if we knew it would not be fun, <laughs> but we have our own path. And so we need to have our own logic of making the decisions. And I think my advice would be, what do you feel like doing? And try new things to experience and to go faster to discover the things that really make you happy and successful. And I think they're the same, by the way. It's like the happiness, fulfillment, go with success. In my logic, it's the same thing. And to say, try new things, take risks, and sort of follow your heart. You and I have already had this discussion in the past. Often people say, okay, follow your passion. When I was 25, I had no passion. (laughs) Okay, I, I had passion, but they had nothing to do with the business. And, <laughs> and so to me, I would say, and I was asking the university I spoke at a few years ago, how do you choose your first job? I say, you know what? Follow your passion is good advice, but you probably don't have one. So you know what? Go to a place where people look passionate. And also, if you feel, oh, this could be great. This is different. I could have fun. That's good motivation Mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh, that's the next step to take in a trajectory that has been defined by books, by career counselors, because they give you the norm for everybody Mm -hmm. and you're not everybody. Right. Why limit yourself to what other people think you should do? Yeah. So that's, uh, I know it's a pretty broad and non-specific answer, but it's a very difficult question you asked. So, well, that's good. I'm glad to end on the toughest question on the test, but you've passed with flying colors. So I like that answer. There's a bit of a Zen quality to that as well. You know what I mean? That you can just go ahead and do what's right for you. And it might not work. It's possible. Just like the sprints that you talked about a while ago, those six-week sprints, you know, might turn out that you got to go in a completely different direction next. But waiting for the 10-year plan, it's the same logic in a way to what we talked about earlier, right? Waiting for that strategic plan to be fixed so that you know exactly what the next step should be. Not only is that a bad idea because the world changes, but it's much less fun. And that's what you're also saying, I think. Absolutely. And I think, by the way, you know, the world we're living in is scary, Right. I'm not talking specifically about COVID, but a competition. And there's a lot of intensity. And I think about my boys, actually, to be honest with you. But at the same time, I think even though it feels much more competitive than it was for you and me a few years ago, Mm -hmm. I think 
-hmm. At the same time, I think there are many ways to get there. And it's not because you don't land the job with the A company in that industry that you're going to have a million options. And I think the people of today that go into the labor market today, they are going to have many more options than we had, I think. It's going to be, in a way, more competitive, but there are many ways to get to mm -hmm. the answer, to create your business, to join a big company, a small company, a mid-sized company. So that's exciting. And I think people are going to stay less long in a given company. Don't you think? That's already happening. I think it's clear. Yeah, th that's a promising way to wrap up. It might be more competitive, but in a way, the denominator is actually pretty big. There's a lot of options that are out yes. there. Bruno, thanks for Same doing the podcast with me. So much to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. And we'll talk soon, I'm sure. We'll talk soon. You be well. Thank you. You too. Bye, Sydney. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. <laughs>